0: We thank you for him together as a church family. We thank you for time that we can spend uh, focused on you and, and to worship you, Lord. We thank you that we can start our weeks this way and, and pray that we leave here uh, refreshed and renewed and, and on fire for you and that we can spread that to uh, everyone that we're around the, the rest of the week, Lord. We thank you so much for Ben and the message that he's bringing to us, Lord. We thank you for Genesis and uh, the way you lay out your love and your... Um, your compassion and, and your plan for your people, Lord. Uh, we thank you for a chance to study that. And uh, Even though we, we read it over and over, Lord, we thank you for the new message that it brings and uh, the new light that it brings on, on you and, uh, and your love for us, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. <clears throat> Genesis 45 is where we will be today. Growing up, my mom uh, taught in Amarillo, but we lived in Panhandle. So there's about a 20-minute commute for her one way. And I know this because I honestly can't remember what I did. I probably used my mouth and my sarcasm to say something that was inappropriate and not right. Uh, But I got in trouble. And so I knew that when my mom got home, I was going to get a whoopin'. Uh, I was in upper elementary, elementary, early junior high, somewhere kind of in that range. And so uh, (laughs) my mom had a 20-minute commute, and I knew this. And so there was this period for me where I was like, well, I have to figure out what I can do. Um, And instead of, you know, like cleaning the house or doing all the things that might appease her anger, I put on three or four layers of underwear. Again, like, Jacob in the Bible frustrates me because I really think I'm a little bit wired like he is. And so when my mom got home, I had been mentally prepared for swats or spankings or whoopings or whatever you want to call them. And to my memory, my mom did nothing. I, like, I don't know what I had done. Like, I wish I was racking my brain. Like, what did I do that this was my mindset. It was like I was absolutely certain I was going to get punished. So much so, I was wearing three or four layers of underwear and then nothing happened. My mom came home like it was a normal day, like I had done no wrong. And so then for the rest of the evening, I'm trying to figure out how do I slip away and take off the extra three to two to three pairs of underwear so that I'm not just walking around with this big old cushion on me. And I remember the feeling of this weight of the punishment just kind of not coming washed away from me when I realized, like, I'm going to get away with this. See, in this chapter, in verse 45, what we find is Joseph is finally going to reveal to his brothers that he is Joseph. And what we see is it is filled with suspense, and it's filled with fear, and and then that they're scared that they're going to get the punishment that they deserve. So let's pray, and then we're going to walk through this just like we always do. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together, and I thank you for a text like this one that is just filled with so many good and right things. Pray that your word would open our hearts, that it would expose us, God, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would convict us where we need conviction, and that we would grow in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 45, verse 1. So then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him and he cried make everyone go out from me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it and Joseph said to his brothers I am Joseph is my father still alive but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence and Joseph said to his brothers come near to me please and so they came near and he said I am your brother Joseph whom you sold Into slavery. Let's pause. So Joseph and Benjamin are are Rachel's kids, Jacob's favorite wife. And and Jacob is the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. And so, because of this favoritism of Jacob, Joseph uh, uh, was given a supervisory role over his brothers, partially because Joseph was a really good tattletale. And so they gave joseph his dad jacob gave joseph this coat that was a fancy coat it wasn't a hard working coat it was an ornate decorative coat right we said it's not a car heart it's like a sports jacket it's not something you're going to go dig around in and so he has this and he is supervising his brothers while his brothers are out in the field sweating and working and keeping the sheep and doing all of this hard labor when there is no air conditioning and so all of this, and then in Genesis 37, we see that God gives Joseph two dreams, which were symbolic dreams, which end up meaning that the brothers and the family and basically the entire world at the time would end up bowing down to Joseph. And so all of this with his older brothers just fuels and fuels and festers and festers within them this hatred for Joseph to the point where they sell him in slavery. In their mind, in the brother's mind, that's the end of Joseph. He's as good as dead. They didn't kill him, but they certainly had no thoughts or ideas that they would ever see Joseph again. And then after they sell Joseph, we saw that the family splinters. And, and and so they treat him like he's dead. The family's kind of in shambles, and, and, and they have no idea what happens to Joseph beyond that. To what we know, they never go looking for him. They never try to find him. They never reach out. He's just gone and then in Joseph's life we see that it starts down and then he goes up and then he goes down and then finally his life ends with him being the number two person in the entire kingdom of Egypt just under Pharaoh like how phenomenal is that let's just think about that for a moment that he's gone from a slave to ruler in a very short amount of time and he had no money to his name he had no prominent social media accounts that he could build up a following No mass communication. This is just God taking this slave Joseph and making him into who he wants him to be for his purpose and for his plan. So when the famine hits, Joseph's been in Egypt for a while. He's dressed like the Egyptians. He's probably, his Israelite twang is probably gone, and he's speaking more with an Egyptian twang than he did before, and, and he's, his haircut's like the Egyptians, and he speaks their languages, which is a part of how he's able to hide his identity from his brothers for so long. He spoke a different language than they did. And so they're speaking Hebrew, not realizing he can understand them. And so finally, uh, after all of this has gone on and he tries to, to get Benjamin, and then Benjamin comes back and there's this, this fighting that's going on between all those things. Finally, when, when Judah speaks and he re- reveals to Joseph that they're repentant about what they did to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph. Judah's repenting of things that they did to their brother, not knowing he's talking to his brother whom he wronged. And so when Joseph sees that they treat Benjamin, Rachel's other son, in a way that's different than they treated Joseph, he realizes that the brothers have repented. That there's hope for a relationship here. And so this breaks Joseph. He's a crier. He's cried all throughout the book of Genesis. And so he he can no longer hide it. He he can no longer hide his identity. He can't control it. It says he sends everybody out of the room but his brothers. But he weeps so loud, everybody heard him weeping. Can you imagine what the brothers are thinking? right? Benjamin had just had the cup found in his bag, and they had brought him back, and to their knowledge, Benjamin was going to have to be enslaved, and the rest of them were going to get to go home, but they know this is going to kill Jacob. And so the brothers are freaking out. Judah offers to be a substitute for Benjamin, and now all of a sudden, the guy who's in charge of their fate starts weeping so loud that people outside the room hear him. What an odd place for the brothers to be. I would imagine they're confused baffled trying to figure out why this guy who doesn't speak their language is crying and then through broken tears Joseph is finally able to say I am Joseph he says is my father alive what I love in this text is they never answer that question as if the brothers aren't already confused now this brother whom they've treated as if being dead for the last 22 years is like, I'm actually not dead. I'm in charge of your fate. So Joseph says, is my father still alive? And the brothers are in such shock that they're like, we, they don't say anything. They're just stunned. They, they have no idea what to do or what, today, what to say. And then it hits the brothers' way. This is Joseph. And if this is Joseph, and this is the guy that we sold into slavery, that we wronged, and if this is the guy that we wronged, and he has all of the power over us right now, we are not in a good situation. The Bible tells us they're dismayed. They know what they did to Joseph deserves punishment. They believe that God has been punishing them their whole lives, and now the truth is they find out the ultimate punishment is the one who controls their fate is the one that they sinned against early on. They ought to be dismayed. But instead, Joseph looks at them and he says, come near. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been great in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors, so that it was not you who sent me here, but God, that he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go to my father and say to him, Say, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down with me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, for there are five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come into poverty. The brothers are dismayed and Joseph says, come near. And then the next thing he tells them is, don't be distressed or angry. Don't be upset that you sold me here because in the end, Joseph tells the brothers that actually what's going on is God sent me here before you to preserve life all of Joseph's life. it's it, And he's one of the more like people we really like in the Bible. If you look at Bible studies, there's a lot of Bible studies on Joseph because he goes through such hard times, but he's able to have this rock solid faith that never seems to move off of the Lord, no matter what his circumstances are. And what he's doing is he's revealing to us how he's able to have this rock solid faith. And what Joseph is saying is that he understands that God's providence for him is good and that God is sovereign and so whatever happens to Joseph even though his brother sinned against him is actually God using it for good that whatever comes his way is not something he has to fear that God is going to use that for good that's how he keeps his trust his, his uh, faith in God is so that he recognizes that God is not distant See, if we fear what the future holds, if we're so focused on keeping our lives looking the way that we want them to look, or if we try our hardest to secure what we have in life and to not let it go, then maybe, just maybe, what we're missing is an understanding that God will use bad things for his glory and for our good. And it's important to say here, God is not the author of sin. There is no moment in time where you or I have the green light from God to sin because our situation is so unique that God is shocked that somebody would go through that. God is God. We are not. There is no situation where God of the Bible is going to encourage you to sin. But that is not to say that sin thwarts God's plan. God can and often does use your sin, my sin, for his glory, for our good. If God... So if if I sin... Right, right. there's this, this underlying thing that happens in, in our part of the world sometimes where we're like okay, so if I sin, God can use it for his glory, so what I'm going to do is God save me so I'm just going to go live my life the way that I want to live it and God's going to kind of do his thing and I'm going to do my thing, I've got the get out of hell free card and, and so now I'm just going to go live my life that way, but what, the problem with that is if we think of sin as a way of well, I can do whatever I want and God's going to do it anyways, I can keep on sinning and God is still going to be forgiving me, the Bible tells us no, 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 that's not what the gospel is God will use your sin like to, to grow you. He's, we saw that with Judah, where Judah sinned pretty bad. And God uses it to mature him, to grow him in the Lord. But it's not a green light for us to sin as much as we can or when we want to or however we feel comfortable doing that. If we understand the gospel, then we understand that grace and mercy that God has lavished on you and I as believers at the cross doesn't free us to sin. It frees us to obey. We obey because God first loves us. Our obedience has not earned us anything. It's not a result of of living, right? right? It's a result of God lavishing grace and lavishing mercy on us so that now we can obey the Lord in a way that we would never be able to obey under the oppression of our sin. See, the Bible is not meant to support your deepest desires. Bible is not meant to uphold what you want to do with your life. The point of the Bible is to reveal who God is and what God is doing. And so if you and I are truly fallen and sinful human beings, then what we need is the Bible not to coddle our lives, but to call us out where we're sinful. To reveal our hearts to the Lord. So an easy and honest way to evaluate if we're slipping into this kind of, and this thought dominates Ira culture. An easy way to dominate, or to 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 see if this thought is is wreaking havoc in your own life is is if to think about this. If God answers your prayers, would your life be more holy or less? If God answered every one of your prayers you prayed, would your family be growing in Christ or would there be something else that's taking place and happening? Would your life be more sanctified in the Lord or would your life just be easier and you would have health? See, Joseph understands that his life is to be used by God however God sees fit. His brothers see this from a human perspective, right? We sold Joseph into slavery, and now Joseph has power and authority over us. We're doomed. And Joseph sees this as God using their sin to bring God glory, which is always for our good. He's not the author of sin, but he will use our sin. And so Joseph tells the brothers, listen, you've already had to come and buy grain twice. We're only two years into this seven-year famine. So for you math friends, that's five more years of famine. So Joseph says, God sent me here not to get you into slavery. But God in his infinite wisdom sent me here 22 years before this famine through trials and through your sin so that we could be in this position for this very moment to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive for many survivors. Joseph's saying, even though you are small, right, remnant, you're not in danger of having your family fade away because God is God and you are not. But then Joseph also says to keep alive many survivors, which is the opposite of a remnant, right? Many and remnant are, are anonyms. So maybe what Joseph is thinking about is is how the Israelites will multiply in Egypt. Maybe what Joseph is thinking about is how, compared to the world's population, they're a remnant, but, but of their own, they're a large remnant. And so Joseph again tells us, brothers, you didn't send me here, God did. God set this course for us. God made sure that this was going to happen. God's ways are above our ways. So go get Jacob, tell him what God has done with me, and then bring him back to Egypt. And I'll give him the land of Goshen, which is a land that was known for its pasture lands. And I'll take care of him and his kids and his grandkids and all of his flocks and everything else that he has. The famine isn't over, and there's a danger that if you stay in the land of Canaan, you'll go into poverty. Like, what a turn for the brothers. They still haven't spoken. But this is, like, not what they expected. They went back to try to plead for Judah to stay with Benjamin so that Judah would be enslaved and the rest of the brothers would go back home. And now they're learning that's not what's going to happen at all. It's a shock and a relief. And there's a lot of emotions that are at play here. So how do they respond? Verse 12. Now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them all. And all his brothers talked with him. So Joseph's explaining everything and outside of like the initial dismay of the brothers, he's he's like looking at them and he's realizing like there's a lot of mixed emotions that are happening here. There's a lot of confusion. This is a lot of information to take in at one time and they've been worried about this sin that's been haunting them for the last 22 years where they sold Joseph into slavery and now they're learning that God used this sin, this low point in their life to actually preserve them as a family. And so Joseph slows down and he's like, listen, you see me and I see you. You hear my voice. I am Joseph. I'm talking to you. Go get Jacob, tell him of all my honor and hurry and come back and bring him here. And then all of the brothers just start crying. They fall on each other, they're weeping, they're hugging, they're talking. It's a beautiful sight when we step back and just see that these relationships between these brothers are about as strained as any relationship could be strained in the Bible. I would think that if you plotted murder against a brother and ended up selling him into slavery, that that relationship would be a little bit awkward at Thanksgiving. But what we see happening here is Joseph demonstrating to us this gospel principle that's probably the hardest one to grasp. Reconciliation. Because let's be honest. If we are in Joseph's shoes, if I'm in Joseph's shoes, I'm pretty certain I know what my response would be. I would be tempted to think that God has placed me in this position not for reconciliation but for revenge. I think I would say, go get Jacob, bring him back here, and then I would grab Benjamin, and then it would be me and Jacob and Benjamin and the other brothers, we would stick in a prison and we would forget about them. They got what they deserved. But that's not what Joseph does. He isn't looking for revenge. He's looking for reconciliation and he sees his brother's repentance. He's already forgiven them. And you can forgive, right, you can forgive somebody without ever talking to them. But you cannot reconcile that relationship without both parties coming together. And so Joseph is showing us that this is a beautiful but a very difficult aspect of the gospel, reconciliation. And it starts with us understanding that we have been reconciled to God even though you and I have never been wronged by God. Now we have sinned against God. We broke the relationship with God. It's our sin and it's our rebellion that separates us from God. But God never wronged us. And so for us to truly be reconciled with God means we have to pay for our sin. The problem with that is we don't have enough to pay for our sin, and we will never have enough. This is why Jesus has to die. He lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death that we deserved. Our only hope is not that I'm good enough, but that Jesus accepts me. So reconciliation with God is accomplished because Jesus pays the price for us to God. And we're all about God's forgiveness on me. That's popular in virtually every Christian circle. We're all about God lavishing his mercy and lavishing his grace on us over and over again. Thank you, God, for that for me. But when it comes to that grace impacting me in a way that I reconcile with other people, we really like to pump the brakes. The reality is, I'm not as free at forgiving and reconciling as God is. Why? And for me, in my heart, it's pride. If somebody hurts me, I look at them and I'm like, now you have to earn your way back. But that's not the way of Jesus. And and forgiveness and reconciling doesn't mean that the relationship goes 100% back to normal. You very well may have people in your life that you can forgive and you might be able to work to reconcile that relationship, but for a lot of reasons, you should never be close to them again. Uh, Abuse comes to mind. But if those relationships are, are so disreconciled that what happens in my heart is I begin to harbor bitterness towards other people, I begin to harbor hatred towards other people, I begin to think of myself as better than other people, or I simply, what I'm really good at is I'll just look at them and I'll say, I just, I'm not going to care about that person anymore. That's not the way of the gospel. Jesus loves us when we're unlovable. Jesus reconciles to us when he did no wrong. We did. Joseph displays this for us with his brothers and Jesus empowers us to do this because if we're saved then what we're saying is Jesus owns all of me And if Jesus owns all of me, then there are things that I need to reconcile with the Lord that I need to repent of. And then there are relationships around me that are affected because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and he is working in my heart to grow me. And so I'm free to be reconciled to other people and I'm free from hatred and fear and hurt and anger and apathy, whatever it is. But the way that we're freed from that is we take it and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is the ultimate judge, not us. The gospel frees us to forgive and to reconcile even the worst and the harshest wounds. But it always starts with laying it at the feet of Christ. Verse 16. So when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt and your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods and the best of the land of Egypt is yours. So there's a common theme with the Egyptians and Joseph. I don't know if you've caught it. It's them hearing. They hear Joseph weeping at the beginning, and and then they hear that Joseph is weeping for joy, and this makes them happy. It brings joy to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's servants. I mean, think about that for just a minute. They love Joseph enough that what makes Joseph happy makes them happy. Pharaoh is the only person in all of Egypt who can command Joseph, and he does here. He commands him to go get his father from the land, bring him to Egypt, and he will give him the best of the land. And I love what Pharaoh's like, don't, and, and like, don't worry about gas. Don't worry about wear and tear on your vehicle. I'm going to send my own wagons. And your dad's going to get the best of the land. It's going to cost Joseph nothing to go get his dad anymore. Pharaoh says, don't worry about your goods. I'm going to give you land that's going to produce the things that you need it to Joseph is going to have this trip funded by a pagan king. It reminds us oftentimes that when things happen, and and, and, and we're walking according to the Lord, that, that in the Lord's grand plan, all of the little details are taken care of and provided for us. I don't know what the financial situation of the Israelites is. We know they've come to Egypt twice for food and that the brothers are not in Canaan, which means the flocks probably aren't being shepherded fully or completely. And if there's a famine, then we can guess that probably they've sold off a lot or or butchered a lot of the animals, and so they don't have as good of animals or quality of animals if there's no water. I'm not an an expert, but I would think if you don't have water, your flocks aren't going to do great. But God provides for his people in the most impossible way. And I'm sure when Joseph initially said, go get Jacob, they're thinking, how can we go get this old man? All right, he's, he's old. He's not going to be able to travel very well. He also wrestled with God and has a limp. Remember that story? We're going to carry him. And then Pharaoh sends wagons and supplies. When it's God's plan, even the smallest, minutest details are taken care of. Verse 21. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. And each and all he gave them a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he set his brothers away and all they departed and they went to them. Uh, And he said to them, do not quarrel on the way I love that passage Joseph obeys Pharaoh he gives the brothers everything and some that they're going to need for the trip he gives Benjamin extra things because you know the youngest is going to get his onesie dirty and then I love that Joseph right before they leave he looks at his brothers and he goes don't fight like I get it a long journey with, with brothers is going to lead to some fights And Joseph's like, I forgive you. We've been reconciled. Don't ruin this by deciding to fight. And so they set out on their way to get Jacob. See, there's a subtle but an important point for us not to to miss in this passage. The gospel brings about a willing obedience in its believers. God's people obey God. Not to earn anything. But because we know that that's what's best for us, and see, Joseph obeys Pharaoh, and it's the easiest obedience in all of the Bible. Right? Here's everything you need to go get your God or go get your, your dad. Now go get him. And the brothers obey Joseph. Remember, earlier in their life, they balked at the idea of having to bow down to Joseph, but now, because of time and the Lord's grace. Their hearts have been softened and their pride has been weakened. And so their obedience comes as a sign of respect, but also gratitude for the goodness that Joseph has shown them. See, our obedience to God is a direct result that we trust that God has not done with us in the world yet. Our obedience with God is a sign of respect that we have for the Lord and is also gratitude for the goodness that the Lord has already given us. Our obedience to God is a direct result that we trust God and that he's working things and lining things up that we could never foresee for his glory and for our good for all we know if we should obey God when it's easy then we should obey God when it costs us something and it's looking more and more likely that if we continue to obey God and stand for biblical truth there will be some costs that you and I will probably have to pay If we do not bow the knee to the sexual revolution, it's looking more and more likely that many of us as Christians in America will lose our jobs or we will lose status or we will lose importance or or respect within a community. Will we still obey? Really the question comes down to do we believe that Jesus is enough? Or can we say Jesus is enough when times are good and times are easy when it doesn't cost us anything? But the moment it begins to cost us something, we're going to cave. Time will tell. See, so God is working right now to refine his people and to grow us in what's looking like will be a season of hardship and living in a world that seems to hate us because we don't support every single little thing that they want to do. Is Jesus enough for us? Verse 25, and so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his, that's Jacob's heart, became numb, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent and carried him, the spirit of the father Jacob was revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now remember, if we put ourselves in Jacob's shoes, he has no idea what's been happening. All he knows is that his favorite son is in the hands of Judah in a foreign kingdom. Jacob's probably worried and praying that that Benjamin will safely make it home. So when all of his sons come back, They tell Jacob news that he could never have imagined the other son, that he is certain is dead, is actually alive. It's so unexpected. I love how real the Bible is. It says Jacob's heart became numb because he didn't believe them. Right, it's too good to be true, right? And it's also these brothers that we've seen their character and their nature. And Jacob's like, you're cut from my cloth. I know who you guys are. I'm not going to just believe every single little thing that you tell me. And so the brothers tell Jacob that Joseph says, and Joseph, Jacob looks up and he sees these wagons coming. And we're told that he's revived because he sees the wagons and he realizes that his son, his lost son, his dead son, is alive. Like, he sent Benjamin worried that he was going to lose both of Rachel's kids, and now he's learning he didn't lose either. In fact, he gains them both back. He says, it's enough. I'm going to see Joseph. And this is just a shadow of the resurrection hope for us. Think about the picture that we're given here. The beloved son was dead, and now he's alive. And Jacob's response is he's revived. This draws my mind to so many of the people who encountered Jesus at the resurrection. But especially Peter. If you remember when they're in the upper room at the last supper, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And the brash person that Peter is, he thought, well, Jesus is wrong here. So after Jesus is arrested, Peter is hanging out while Jesus is being tortured and tried, and he's warming himself by a fire when a little servant girl looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one who was with the disciples? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter denies it. He denies this not because his life was in danger. It's a little servant girl that talks to him. There's not pressure in that moment that he might also be crucified. No, he denies it to a little servant girl, which happens to be the third time that he's denied it that night. (coughs) Excuse me. So when the rooster crows, Peter realizes what he's done. And in God's providence, Peter turns to look, and it just so happens that Jesus is being escorted from one illegal, unjust trial to another illegal, unjust trial, and their eyes meet. And it shatters Peter. And it leaves them in shame. And sometimes later, after the resurrection, and there's rumors that Jesus has been resurrected, Peter and six other disciples go and do what they know how to do best fish. And they go, they were professional fishermen. And they go, I love that the two times we're told about Peter as a professional fisherman fishing, he catches nothing. All night. And then they look and there's some dude on shore yelling, Hey, did y'all catch any fish? And Peter's embarrassed and he's not really wanting to talk to this guy. And so he was like, I don't know, whatever. And the guy yells, cast your net on the other side of the boat. If this is ringing a bell, this is how Jesus initially called Peter. Peter. He was fishing. They caught nothing. He says, cast it on the other side of the net. And when they pull the net up, it starts breaking. So James and John have to come over and help Peter and Andrew get this net of fish that's in. And so these guys cast the net to the other side of the boat. This time, after Jesus has been uh, crucified, and they catch so many fish that they can't haul them in. And then John looks up and he says, hey, that guy yelling at us is Jesus. And Peter puts on his coat and jumps into the water puts it on John makes sure in his gospel to tell us that he beats, Jesus to, or he beats Peter to the tomb Peter makes sure to tell us he beats John to the shore everybody else is trying to figure out how do we get this net of fish that we can't lift up onto the boat and Peter's putting on his coat and swimming to the shore and when he gets there what he sees is Jesus has some fish cooking and some bread cooking on a fire And so Jesus gives him some bread and some fish. Everybody else comes along, and then Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, Do you love me? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, Feed my sheep. Again, second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, Tend to my sheep third time Jesus looks at Peter and says do you love me and this grieves Peter because he knows how many times he denied Jesus and Peter replies you know everything you know that I love you three times Peter denied Jesus Peter leaves that in shame And finally see that Peter and Jesus, after the resurrection, and three times the Lord asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter replies with, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And all three times Jesus replies with, well, then feed or tend my sheep. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is that shame that you experience is over. Like this changes Peter fundamentally. He denied Jesus to a little girl, but in the book of Acts, Peter is threatened with his life multiple times by people who will kill him to stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter says, kill me, I'm not going to stop. In fact, church history tells us that Peter watched his wife get crucified and then he was crucified upside down because he didn't count it as as worthy to be crucified like his Savior. That's a different person than the dude who denies Jesus to a little girl. The resurrected Jesus revives Peter. But he wasn't the only one who was revived by the resurrection. If you know the stories, you can think of Mary, Martha, Mary the mother of Jesus, the two men on the road to Emmaus, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, the other apostles, Paul. All of them have these encounters with the resurrected Jesus, and all of their lives are revived because they see Jesus after he's been crucified, and they realize what that means. So what about you? God's plans often look like they're failing until they don't. The gospel looked dead when Jesus was dead. But the resurrection was the greatest surprise in all of history. It revives people in such a way that we're fundamentally changed, that we go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, that our spirits are resurrected. So what's your response? People were revived because they experienced the resurrected Jesus. And today, the same thing is still happening. But you know, we meet on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection. Sunday is not the Jewish Sabbath. Saturday is. After Jesus is resurrected, the church, the apostles start meeting on Sunday so that every week we remind ourselves Christ is not dead, he is resurrected. The resurrection reminds us that God knows all of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows like all of us as a whole and then all of us as individuals. And that he still lavishes his grace and that he still lavishes his mercy even when he knows the ugly that's inside of us. So have you repented and turned to Jesus for salvation? Have you been living a life of sanctification, reminding yourself that it's the gospel that saved you and that it's the gospel that sustains you, that the Lord is not done with you and what that means is He is going to use you and he's going to keep you growing in your faith. God is active in preserving his people. It may feel like Jesus is inactive. It may feel like God's not winning. It may feel like culture is spinning at a pace that we cannot keep up with. But God is active and he is not out of control. Right now, he's working to draw people to salvation, working all things together for his glory. Is there a part of us that doubts that God is using these times? these situations, whatever you're going through. And if that's the case, repent. (laughs) Turn from your sin and trust the Lord. And maybe for you there's a, a relationship in your life or multiple relationships that are broken in need of being reconciled, but you hold off because there's pride in you that thinks this person has to earn their way back to me. Repent. Turn to Jesus in all of life, no matter what's happening, God is not forgotten about you and he takes care of his people. Your job is to respond to God in obedience, even if it costs you everything. Because resurrection revives. The death of Jesus gives life sinners like you and me. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can grow in you. God, thank you that we can read a story from Genesis 45 and see that it applies straight to you, Jesus. God, we know that you are not dead. You died, but you are not dead now. You've been resurrected. You ascended. Jesus, you hear our prayers right now, and you intercede for us on behalf of us. I pray that you would use these words, that you would use your word to bring life. Revive us in you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.